text this morning is Job chapters 25 and 26. This morning in chapter 25 we have Bill Dad, who's giving us his final speech. And this will really be the final speech of all three of Job's friends. Um, Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad. Um, Elihu will be coming up soon and be speaking, but for the next few chapters after Bildad, we have Job replying, and this morning we will be considering, first of all, chapter 25, where Bildad is speaking, and then chapter 26 of, of Job. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? Then Job answered and said, How you have helped him who has no power. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. With whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out from you? The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power he stilled the sea, by his understanding He shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? It's a common thing for people to take truth about God and apply it in wrong ways. For example, people will say, Rightly so, that God is love, 1 John 4, 8, but then go on to say, contrary to Scripture, that our loving God would never send anybody to hell. Or they might rightly acknowledge that God is just and that all sin must be punished, but then go wrong when they say the sinner can pay for his own sins in this life and in purgatory and eventually get out and get set free from all such punishment. Or like in the text before us this morning, we can have Bildad who believes in the greatness of God, while at the same time thinking he fully understands how that greatness manifests itself in this world. Included in the title of this morning's sermon, two words that are two related attributes of God that come out in these chapters that we are considering, namely God's inscrutability and God's incomprehensibility. And these words have to do with whether or not God can be known as he really is. And I want to take some time this morning to explain the meaning of these words as applied to God because these, like other attributes of God, can be applied in wrong ways. Well, together, the inscrutability and incomprehensibility of God are all about the infinite distance 
between God as creator and us as the creature. They together mean that God cannot be fully understood. Neither who he is nor what he does. Inscrutability has to do with trying to understand God and incomprehensibility has to do with what can be known. You probably recognize that word scrutinize. It means to study, to investigate, to examine something. And when we scrutinize God, what you need to realize is that the study of God is difficult. Right? He is not readily understood. There is mystery that surrounds God and his ways. Just think, for example, of the doctrine of the Trinity. That is something that I don't believe we will ever fully understand. Now, while Romans 1 indicates that there are plenty of things that are known by all people about God from creation, it still remains true that it's impossible for us to fully understand God. That's what's meant by God's incomprehensibility. Because if we could comprehend God, it would mean we could essentially put a box around God and we'd be able to grasp completely God's nature and his ways. And notice I use the word completely. That is significant. The inscrutability and incomprehensibility of God do not mean we can't know something of God and his purposes. Yes, we can, but those words point out we cannot fully understand God in his, and his ways. Not only does it take work to know God, but even after we study God, we never arrive at a knowledge of God where all mystery is gone. And what I'm describing fits with what we are told in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, where it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there are secret things, secret things that we are never intended to know. They are not revealed to us, and so really they're impossible for us to know, and we might be inclined, as many people are, to speculate about these secret things, but we need to remember that it's highly inappropriate to entertain any false views of God. And so we should stick with just what God has chosen to reveal about himself. In fact, the things that are revealed to us in creation, according to Romans 1, and especially the things revealed about God in Scripture, are there for us to scrutinize and to learn and to believe. And uh, God's inscrutability comes into play even as we Therefore, investigate and study his revelation that he has given of himself. And so we study creation, and we study the scriptures, and we read scripture over and over again, and we compare scripture with scripture. It, it takes work to understand God's revelation of himself. And remember that even if we were eventually to grasp completely all that God has revealed about himself in scripture, which we don't, but let's say we were to do that, even then there would continue to be secret things. And hence, God is both inscrutable and incomprehensible. Bring this up because this perspective was lost to Bildad. Bildad presents a view of God's greatness in chapter 25 that as we read this, basically we can agree with him. And yet at the same time, he presents a God who fits neatly into the box of his and his friends' theological system. For Bildad, God's greatness is manifested in holiness, and in a holiness that doesn't allow him to have a relationship that's, that's void of, of, of wrath and punishment 
with people who continue to sin, which is essentially everyone. For Bildad, a covenant relationship of friendship and fellowship between God and his people, where God's love never falters or fades, according to Bildad, that's impossible because of our sin. For Bildad, God is a great God. He is powerful. He is holy, even merciful and loving. But what is lacking in Bildad's theology is the gospel, the good news of a gracious God saving undeserving sinners and reconciling them with himself in a way that sets them free, that sets us free from all wrath and all condemnation for sin once and for all. He doesn't understand that. He's missed a key truth, which is that it is possible to be right with God and still suffer. As much as this doesn't make sense to Bildad and his friends, they should have remembered that part of God's greatness is the fact that there are things about him that don't immediately make sense to us, but are found to be true based upon closer examination of his revelation, or that we simply must accept based on deductions from those things that we already know. But either way, God's greatness involves mystery. It involves the inability on our part to fully understand God's ways. And that's okay. In fact, we need to recognize that humbly so. I've taken as a theme of these chapters God's greatness, inscrutable and incomprehensible, and the outline follows under four points. God's greatness, as it's argued here by Bildad, that's the first point. Second, God's greatness in relation to man, which is also part of Bildad's uh, speech. And then um, God's greatness further described by Job in chapter 26. And then the implications of God's greatness being inscrutable and incomprehensible. So Bildad, here in chapter 25, defends God's greatness, and in a way that I think you will find agreeable, and I think presumably agreeable even to Job. Notice verses 2 and 3, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies upon whom does his light not arise? That word dominion highlights God's sovereign rule over all things. I uh, point out that the fear of God highlighted by the Hebrew word used here is not the fear of a godly man reverencing God, but the terror and dread that unreconciled sinners should, should have and often do have of God as a God of justice who punishes evildoers. And we might have some argument with, with Bildad about why he chooses that particular word, but nevertheless... Um, he's not pointing out something that's inherently wrong. And he goes on to say he makes peace in his high, high, um, in his high heaven, which means that in heaven as God's dwelling place, there's peace. And, and it's because all there are sovereignly made to serve him. And uh, we recall from chapters 1 and 2 how even Satan is able to do only what God allows. And I think of the Lord's Prayer and the petition that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, God's redeemed people and angels, they obey God exactly as he dictates. And uh, thinking of the obedience of God's creatures in heaven leads rather naturally to verse three, where he asks, is there any number to God's armies or his hosts? And uh, this is a reference to angels. Um, these armies of God are his angels and Bildad is right about their great number. Hebrews 12:22 uh, refers to innumerable angels. And God's greatness, therefore, is revealed in this heavenly, sovereign rule 
over a great army of angels. The second question in verse 3 draws our attention to how God's rule extends over all of his creatures. Upon whom does his light not arise? Now, if Bildad is still thinking about the angel armies of God, the idea would be that God's glory and holiness, as represented by the radiance of his light, it shines over these angels. It stands over and above these angels whose glory is but a faint reflection of God's glory. But I believe that, that, that likely here, Bildad is, is thinking of God's rule over man. And the idea is that he makes his sun to shine on all, giving life to all. Reminding us that without God, we cannot live, we cannot move, we do not have even being. And uh, likewise, uh, likely Bildad is thinking about the sun, um, because in verse 5 he refers to other heavenly bodies, the moon, the stars, and how the glory of their light is as nothing compared to the radiance of God's holiness. Hold, even this moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, that is, in God's eyes. Which brings us to God's rela- uh, greatness in relation to man, as, as explained here by Bildad, verses 4 and 6 are really key to the point that Bildad is making. And his main point is that God's holiness requires that God would respond always to man's sin with wrath. He is in his moral purity, that is, in, in God's moral purity, he is so far above us and all of his creation, even above the mighty angels, that there is no possibility of him excusing our sin and not responding with punishment as a righteous judge. Now, of course, in a sense, Bildad is right. God is holy. God is righteous. All sin will be punished. But, of course, we would argue in the cross we are set free from that punishment. So he's partly right, but... What he's trying to communicate makes what he says mostly wrong. It's clear that verse 4 is meant as a rhetorical question expecting a negative answer. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Now, if we take those questions just at face value, he's saying there's no salvation from sin. He's negating the covenant. He's negating the hope of justification by faith. And when we consider what Bildad has said in his two earlier speeches, really he has been very simplistic in his response to Job, probably the most simplistic of all of Job's friends. In chapters 8 and 18, he has basically said, you can just distill everything he says down into this very simple statement that people who suffer are evil, and the only way that Job can end his suffering is to repent. That's it. Evil people suffer, so if you suffer, it's because you've sinned. Job, you need to repent. Now, it's interesting that here in chapter 25, in Bildad's last speech, he's no longer pushing that old, worn-out argument. He's actually quoting from Eliphaz. Eliphaz asked back in chapter 417, and notice how this matches up very clearly with with, uh, verse 4. Here in chapter 25, in in 417, Eliphaz said, Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And then Eliphaz in chapter 15, verses 14 through 16, said, What is man that he can be pure? Or he was born of a woman that he can be righteous. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight, much less one who is abominable and corrupt, 
a man who drinks injustice like water. So these words sound very familiar, do they not, as we read chapter 25, verse 4. And so apparently Bildad has given up his arguments and has decided to turn to Eliphaz's argument as the last word, and not only for him, but for all of his friends, for we hear nothing more after this from any of Job's friends. Though Eliphaz's words sound like um, a denial, that salvation from sin is even possible, it's unlikely that we are to take Eliphaz and Bildad's words in that way. Um, If there was no way whatsoever for man to be in the right before God, there would be no salvation. These men have insisted, though, that there are righteous and upright people who are right with God and thus experience his blessings. And so we're forced to conclude that what Eliphaz and now Bildad must mean is that there is no man on earth who can claim to be without sin. That is, no one, not even a believer, is perfectly righteous and pure as we think of his daily, as we think of even our daily walk with God. Now, these, these men, these friends, are clearly not distinguishing between justification and sanctification. We can excuse them for not having the theological knowledge that we have with the revelation that has, of course, greatly increased with the New Testament. But with justification, I would remind you, by faith in Christ, you are judicially declared to be in the right before God. Your sin record is expunged, and you are righteous in the sight of God. And yet you and I are not pure. There is still sin in our hearts and in our lives because of the remnants of our corrupt nature. And so we are not pure in the sense of of holy and thus need the ongoing work of sanctification. And Eliphaz and Bildad and presumably Zophar rightly understand that even one sin makes a sinner unrighteous. And what they are not grasping is the reality that we can be in the right before God through faith as justified sinners and yet not pure at the same time as a sinner needing sanctification. But Eliphaz and and, uh, Bildad are not recognizing these nuances and are simply asserting we believe that even believers still sin and thus it would be wrong on our part to claim to be in that sense in the in the right before God and pure. And in support of this interpretation, Bildad ends chapter 25 by pointing to man's utter sinfulness. He asserts that even if the moon and stars don't fully reflect the holiness of God, then in comparison, how much less man, who is a maggot, and the son of man, who is a worm. And so the point that is implied, though not stated directly, is that if man continues to sin, which of course he does, then he is to expect suffering as punishment. Bildad and Eliphaz wrongly think that Job is insisting that he is without sin, and that is why he is challenging what God is doing to him. But I'd remind you that Job has never claimed to be sinless, and he has never sought an audience with God in court with the goal that he would go before God and defend a personal and perfect righteousness and purity that he has conjured up on his own. Job's friends have misunderstood Job as saying that he can stand before God in his own righteousness. They think his plan is to argue before God his sinlessness as a basis for challenging the suffering that God has brought into his life. But in reality, all Job has done is he has claimed that 
He's not committed the horrible sins that his friends have claimed must have taken place for him to have experienced such horrible suffering. And of course, Job is right. And uh, Bildad ends his response pointing to man's total depravity, which we believe scripture clearly teaches, but here he applies it wrongly to Job. He is basically saying, Job, you're a sinner, and to say otherwise is to lie. And the idea that you have of being able to go before God and claim to be as holy as God and to call him into question for punishing you for your sin, this is all wrong. And so that's how Bildad ends his, his speech to Job. And with that, the friends have clearly run out of fuel and uh, their responses to Job are ended. They've not really listened to Job. They're not willing to think outside the box of their very simplistic theological system. God's greatness for them is basically limited to his rule over all things and to his holiness, which prompts God to respond with vengeance, even on his redeemed people when they sin. In chapter 26, now coming to God's greatness as it's further described by Job, Job takes up what Bildad has said on the theme of God's greatness. He expands on it. The first section is verses 1 through 4. And uh, in verses 2 through 4, we have this sarcasm that's leveled at Bildad's worthless speech. How you have helped him who has no power. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. With whose help have you uttered words? And whose breath has come out from you. So Job is commenting on the help that his friends have given him, which he is saying has essentially been nothing. And uh, Christopher Ash, in his um, commentary, paraphrases these verses as Job saying, in essence, quote, I am so grateful that I, who am powerless and weak, have found such life saving help and salvation from your lips. Verse 2 That I, who have no wisdom and never say anything right, have been privileged to listen to your plentiful, health-giving, sound knowledge. Verse 3, what a lucky man I am. But just tell me from where you obtained such saving wisdom. Verse 4, someone wonderful must have helped you. You must have been inspired by some wonderful breath or spirit. And by the way, by asking whose breath has come out of you, Job is there using the language of Scripture being God-breathed. And he's using sarcasm He's calling into question that these views actually line up with God's revelation. And then uh, Christopher Ash goes on to say, it's almost as if Job posts on Facebook, just been listening to eight wonderful speeches from the wisest men on earth. I've been having some difficulties and sadnesses recently, and they've really helped me so much not, uh, end quote. With that scathing introduction, Job launches into a defense of God's greatness. And what I would point out that at the heart of the things that Job here lays out, these are things that are known to God, but are things hidden from us as human beings. And I think that's the perspective that, that Job is trying to show us. Notice there are so many things that we really don't know and understand about God. And shouldn't that be applied then to our lives as we think of suffering and how that relates so verses 5 and 6 highlight God's knowledge and sovereignty over the realm of the dead. And I think um, while God is certainly sovereign over all of the dead, believer and unbeliever alike, the emphasis here is on God's relationship to dead unbelievers. 
So this is uh, verses 5 and 6. The dead tremble under the waters, and their inhabitants, Sheol, is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. The word dead is actually the word Rephaim, which in the Old Testament refers to, uh, in many cases, departed spirits in general, um, the souls of the dead. But there's also probably a connection to the Rephaim of Canaan, who were a giant people, who were an obvious threat to God's people. And so these dead, these Rephaim, who are now trembling, were those who once were thought to be this great threat to God and his people, but God has humbled them. They are dead. And a Sheol is a name for the realm of the dead. Here is pictured as being under the waters and thus completely inaccessible to the living. The word Abaddon means destruction and could be a description of the fact that life for these Rephaim, these dead, is a place of punishment. But yet how the word ends up being used later in Scripture probably refers to a supernatural spiritual power who is standing guard over Sheol, which we would recognize as Satan. And that Abaddon, Satan has no covering, means that he is completely vulnerable to God's judgments. You see, when we, when we are saved through Christ, we speak of his blood covering our sins as a propitiation, shielding us from God's wrath. But Satan and his followers, his victims, have no such covering, but are punished with everlasting destruction away from the presence of God and from the glory of his might, knowing nothing of his loving favor and goodness, but only judgment. They are, without this covering, exposed before God, they cannot stop his judgments against them. And then with verses 7 through 13 and verse 11 considered separately, the, these verses bring us to the realm of the earth and to the hidden ways in which God provides order and, and boundaries for life here, but in very mysterious ways. The heavens, that is the north of verse 7, are stretched out by God over empty space. The earth itself is suspended on nothing. Verse 7, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. And Job's words uh, parallel Moses' words in Genesis 1-2 of the earth at first being without form and void. And the word that's used here in connection with the north, when it says he stretches out the north over the void, um, that, that the, used, the word that's used here is the word for without form. Um, I don't know why it's translated in the ESV as, as uh, void, um, over the void, because it's in, in uh, Genesis 1-2, it's without form and void, and here it's the word for without form. And so this word highlights how at first there was no structure to the world, right? God created all of this material stuff, the, 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 essentially the periodic table of the elements, but they were not in any form. There was at first no structure. And so he's saying there's no structure on which heaven rests. The earth also has no visible support. We know that God, right, he uses gravity there. He uses other invisible forces to support the earth. But Job is more right than he probably realized in describing the earth floating through empty space. Even today, we don't fully understand gravity. We know that it exists. We can measure it. We can explain it to some degree, but we don't really know what it is. And we trust that God, though, will continue to support the earth. And then we have verse 8. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. 
Here he highlights the mystery of the relationship of clouds and rain. Think of it, water by the thousands of pounds is held up by God in the sky in wispy clouds, which appear to be nothing. How is it that all this water is held up in the sky and is not, the, the clouds are not allowed to, to split open, which would bring a cloudburst of rain because God is binding the water in the clouds. And then we have verse 9, he covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. And whether we vocalize the Hebrew consonants here a certain way, um, what is covered by clouds is God's throne, or perhaps as the ESV has it, the full moon. But either way, the imagery brings to mind God's concealing things as he wills. And then verse 10, he has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. This circle is the horizon. This circle represents God separating the darkness of the seas from the light of the skies. Hidden from us is this power of God keeping all parts of his creation in their proper places, keeping the seas within their bounds, separated from the sky as well as separated from the land. And then we have verse 11, which comes as a surprise. It's like inserted in here and, and doesn't seem to belong where it says the pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. So Job is talking about all of the order to creation. And then suddenly now this verse calls into question that everything is always in this perfect order. The pillars of heaven are a poetical way of describing what a person sees when he's looking at the horizon and he sees mountains meeting the sky. It looks like the mountains are holding up the sky. But God can, and he does at times, disrupt that order. He shakes the mountains with, say, an earthquake or even blows up the mountain with a volcano. So why does God at times change things up? Why at times is there this disruption of order? Verses 12 and 13 give us a hint. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. And this is a poetical and figurative description of God's sovereignty over the forces of evil. Rahab is the same thing as the fleeing serpent. According to Isaiah 27, is also called Leviathan. We're going to hear more about Leviathan in chapters to come here in Job. And this is either a mythological creature that was widely known to the world of Job's day that symbolized the forces of evil, or as I'm inclined to believe, it was an actual, gigantic, terrifying creature of the sea that has since become extinct. And because of how terrifying it was, it was thought of as evil. And uh, perhaps it belonged even to the world of the dinosaurs. But regardless, the picture is of God hunting down and killing this evil, dangerous creature. Literally in verse 12, he makes the sea, which in scripture often symbolizes the, the, the dark and chaotic world of evil. He makes the sea, if we really, a study of the Hebrew indicates, it's saying to, to stand back and to retreat. There's a sense in which the, the sea is stilled, right? Even as we think of how, um, it, it, with Moses and, and the people of Israel exiting 
um, and crossing the Red Sea, there was, it's the very same word. The sea was made to stand back and retreat, and then it was made still. So, but the idea is basically to, to, to stand back and retreat, and the idea is presumably so that Rahab can't hide in the darkness of the sea from God. And then verse 13 indicates that this hunting is taking place now at night and clouds are blocking the light of the stars and moon, but God can just blow the, the, the clouds out of the way. And as a result, he is able to pierce the fling serpent with a death blow. It's interesting to note that in time, Egypt will be called Rahab because of how Egypt came to represent the forces of evil working against God and his people. And as I mentioned a moment ago, verse 12 is also prophetic of how God would literally push back and divide the sea, the Red Sea, in order to deliver God's people from the evil of Rahab or of Egypt. Of course, those events were long in Job's future, but God is a God who in his own mysterious and unpredicted ways conquers the forces of evil. And so much of the world's chaos is due to God exerting his power over evil, interacting with evil and overcoming it. Verse 14 sets forth really the main point that Job is making. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? We know so little about God. God's knowledge and, and, and power over the realm of the dead, the mystery of how the heavens and earth are supported in space, the mystery of how clouds can hold rain, and in general, how much mystery there is in the world because even though God has created a world of order and of boundaries, he's also allowed evil and the ensuing chaos, and these are reminders of how little we see and know, really, of all that God is doing as he rules this world. How does it work that God is a God of order and sovereign, and yet there's evil and chaos? How much do we understand this creation and his providence? The things Job highlights are still things we don't fully understand. And I think that's, that, that in of itself shows that this word is inspired by God, that we can read these very same words centuries later, and we still haven't figured these things out, and God knew that. That's the point. God and his ways are inscrutable and incomprehensible. We will never fully understand God. Now, what we do know from God's self-revelation in Scripture is all true. But it does not negate mystery. These things that Job has described are but the outskirts. They are just the edges that we are allowed to see of his ways. There's so much more about God and his sovereign plan that lies out of sight. What, God, what, what Job has described is no more than a whisper of revelation from God, and even that is beyond us. And if he were to unleash the full revelation of himself in a powerful peal of thunder, who could understand? Barnes says of this, this is a small portion of his works. We see only the outlines, the surface of his mighty doings. This is still true. With all the advances which have been made in science, it is still true that we see but a small part of his works. What we are enabled to trace with all the aids of science compared with what is unseen and unknown may be like the analysis of a single drop of water compared with the ocean. 
but how little a portion is heard of him. Or rather, but what a faint whisper have we heard of him. Literally, what a whisper of a word. A whisper of a word means a word not fully and audibly spoken, but which is whispered into the ear. And the beautiful idea here is that what we see of God and what he makes known to us compared with the full and glorious reality bears about the same relation which the gentlest whisper does to words that are fully spoken. The thunder of his power, who can understand it's probable that, that there is here a comparison between the gentle whisper and the mighty thunder. And that the idea is, if instead of speaking to us in gentle whispers, and giving to us in that way some faint indications of his nature, he were to speak out in thunder, who could understand him? If when he speaks in such faint and gentle tones, we are so much impressed with a sense of his greatness and glory, who would not be overwhelmed if he were to speak out as in thunder? End quote. The point is, Bildad and his friends, they don't believe in mystery. Their God is scrutable. Their God is comprehensible. They think they fully understand his ways with men. They don't realize that our revelation of God is but the edges of who he is. And therefore, we need to humbly admit we don't know what God is doing in people's lives like Job's. What we see in, in, in Job is faith that is coexisting with confessed ignorance. He readily admits that he doesn't know everything about God's ways. Yet he does know a number of things that he clearly sets forth here. He knows that God is sovereign even over evil. And he does know that God can and does destroy the forces of evil. While Job's friends see only uniformity and predictability in God's activity and creation, Job has some understanding of the fact that in God's defeating of evil, there is going to be upheaval and there is going to be shaking that affects the creation order. And this is seen in a very dramatic way in Jesus' coming. His coming was a direct assault on the forces of evil. The scripture says that his death on the cross disarmed the rulers and authorities that belonged to Satan's realm and put them to open shame by Jesus' triumphing over them. When his spirit comes into your life, the change that results is nothing less than you becoming a new creation. Through faith in Jesus, you are transformed from the, or transferred from the, the family of Satan to the family of God, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Talk about a disruption of the status quo. And Satan hates it and he rails against it and God's people suffer. Why does God allow this? Job and all of his friends don't know what has happened behind the scenes like we do. We know that this is a test designed to prove Job's faith, a test designed to glorify God as a God who will be trusted and loved by his people despite Satan's attacks. And Job figures that he doesn't know everything. He figures he must be missing something. And he's correct, and that should be our perspective too. We need to trust God's love for us in Christ and trust that not all suffering is about experiencing God's wrath. And even if you don't see how everything fits, latch onto what you do know. Jesus has taken all of the punishment that your sin deserves. That's really all you need to know. You don't need to really know anything else. You don't need to know everything about God. You don't need to know why he is doing what he is doing to know that he loves you in Christ and is worthy of your trust. Amen. Let us pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for the revelation that you have given of yourself, and yet, Father, we acknowledge that you are so far above us. You're such an infinite and majestic God that what we know is just the outskirts. We're thankful for the whispers of revelation that you've given us. We know that, that Lord, were you to speak to us in, in, a, in a fuller way that we would not be able to even understand. So, Father, give us a humility to accept your ways with us, to know that you know things that we don't know, that you have a plan that is greater than anything we could come up with. So may we trust you, and may we trust especially based on the work of the Lord Jesus, who has taken upon himself all of the punishment that we deserve. So we know, Father, that what we experience by way of suffering can't be your wrath. May we deduce these things as we meditate upon the truths that we do know, and may they be a great comfort to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.